Get ready to whiten those knuckles and hold fast as we talk the most dangerous, daring, and epic sea stories ever told. Whether facing ruthless men who prey on other mariners, or storms that turn calm seas into graveyards. Those who go down to the sea and cast off lines enter the most challenging and dangerous environment on earth. Only here will you hear their stories and the lessons gained through their experience. I'm your host, Phil. And I'm Bill. And we welcome you aboard the Had to Go Out podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we need to provide a disclaimer. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and are not to be construed as official or reflecting the views of any government agency or military service. This podcast is an independent effort with no government association. When the most is expected, the brave men and women of the U.S. Coast Guard are always ready. The National Coast Guard Museum will engage, educate, and inspire visitors by honoring the courage and skill of our nation's unsung armed service. The museum will explore the Coast Guard's rich history and current impact through interactive exhibits, STEM-based learning experiences, and leadership development programming. Find out how you can join the effort. Become a plank owner today. Visit coastguardmuseum.org out. That's coastguardmuseum.org O-U-T. Want to check out is the Always Ready Collective, delivering art by and for daring fighters of the sea with their maritime-focused tattoo flash, pinups, and propaganda. Visit them on Facebook, Etsy, Instagram, and at alwaysreadycollective.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Had to Go Out podcast. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support to the National Coast Guard Museum. And thanks for liking, subscribing, sharing, following, doing all that social media stuff that uh, gets the word out and uh, and gives us motivation to continue to record these stories. Uh, not that they're not motivation enough, right, Bill? <laughs> yeah, no, we have a blast doing this. And, uh, and thank you everybody for being here. If it's your first episode, uh, you're going to enjoy this one because they're all good episodes after you listen to this go back listen to some others find us on instagram find us on youtube find us on twitter find us on facebook uh like some of our posts tell us what you like and uh if you've got anybody out there or if you yourself have some dangerous daring or epic sea stories please reach out and contact us we want to uh we won't get want to get more of these veteran stories out there uh make sure on whatever podcast platform you're listening to give us that five-star review and uh and tell us everything we did awesome. I like that. That was good. So, yeah, uh, who we have today. You know, some sea stories are better than others. And after talking with uh, talking with our guests today last night, I think we're going to get uh, get some good ones. I saw uh, kind of connected on Facebook, which is where I, you know we do a lot of business on there, and uh, talking about the Muriel boat lift out of Cuba. And it sounds like we're going to get some uh, get some quality stories. And we're actually going to talk about a. Uh, a ship type that that came up once before, and I, I'm pretty sure Bill and I had to Google the thing, but uh, it'll be interesting. I just Googled it again. Actually. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, hey, uh, who we got on the line is uh, former MK3 machinery technician, third class Jim Morphew, uh, born in Arkansas, raised as uh, an Army brat, graduating from high school in Germany. Uh, joined the Coast Guard back in January of 1978 
went to recruit training in Alameda with company Oscar 116. Uh, from there, first uh, first assignment was stationed Grand Isle, Louisiana, a paradise that I hear, and uh, can't wait to hear his outlook on it. Um, I've, I've been there. It's beautiful. <laughs> from, from Grand Isle, uh, walked across the street to the Point, si- Point Sal, which was an 82-footer uh, also in Grand Isle. Went from there to Machinery Technician A School, then back to Grand Isle. They had him. Uh, from uh, that second tour, went to the Point Spencer, 82 out of New Orleans. And um, after they uh, they made some magic on that sh- cutter, they he crewed the first 110-foot surface effect ship, an SES, the Dorado, also out of New Orleans. Uh, then went to Captain of the Port, New Orleans, and from there to the Point Roberts in Mayport, Florida, um, released from active duty in March of 1987 after almost a decade of service. Jim, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show, sir. Hey guys, how are y'all doing? Uh, we're doing awesome, Jim. Thanks for being here today. We, uh, we look forward to talking to you some, and, uh, with Phil's introduction, what's your most dangerous, daring or epic sea story or stories? Well, uh, you know, I'm sitting there thinking about quite a few of them, and, and I think the the biggest highlighted one that we were involved with was on the Coast Guard Cutter Point Spencer. Um, we um, we got got a hold of a, a drug boat one night that we got uh, intelligence on, and the the whole thing was just was amazing. And we had 45 tons on board. Actually, we got them 23 prisoners. And we had to use 50 caliber to to disable the vessel. Um, that was I'm, a heck of a night. I'm liking where the story's going. So we're uh, when how did it kick off? Tell us about tell us a little bit about the 82 and how the uh, how how you guys got the info and where you were during the whole case. Well, the, the Point Spencer was was really the most active boat I'd ever seen or ever been on. I I I had a chance to go to her after station grand isle after i'd gotten out of a school and i took the, the opportunity um and we were involved in the cuban refugees and all this so this was after the cuban ops this was december 1980 i think it was um we were in charlie but they called us out said we had to go to grand isle for a standby so like we had the xo was on on leave and the eo was on leave so it was me and the JG and the QM3, we got the crew up and boom, we headed to Grand Isle. Got to Grand Isle that next day, we just kind of, you know, pedaled around and uh, government vehicle shows up with a big old tall lieutenant and two brand new boots, one seaman and one fireman. And the old man says, get the pictures mounted. And I knew then we had something happening. So off we went and we, we, uh, the boat we were looking for was called Motor Vessel Polaris. She was a 160-foot mud lugger or supply boat, and supposedly it was carrying pretty hot. We caught up with her that night. Finally, uh, I don't know how we got her, but something tells me satellites had something to do with it. It was right then in the beginning when we were really starting to smuggle operations. Um, they wouldn't stop. We followed and we followed, and the JG get a hold and. Uh, JG's name was Lieutenant Hank Teton. We called him Hammer and Hank. He called the 8th District. 8th District called Washington. Washington called back, finally to give us permission for disabling fire. 
we tried a couple of things. We put a big old two and a half inch hauser out in front of the boat and shot it with the water. And we did quite a few things before we ever got to the 50. But then we racked up the 50 and let it rip. Uh, and if you ever shot a 50 off an 82 footer, it ain't going to happen very well. <laughs> It, it, we talk about a cork you can get the rounds. You can get the rounds wet, but that's about it, right? We were doing thirty degree uh, uh, rolls on on a coming up to a two or coming up to a, uh, a three seventy eight during the Cuban ops, and they were sitting flat still. We were out there looking like you had to hang on for live. That's how they roll. But uh, back to the, the Polaris. We shot it up good, you know, and it's in the middle. It's probably three o'clock in the morning, and these two wide-eyed boots we had just looked at me and says, "Man, does this go on all the time?" I said, "Yep, happens yeah. all the time." There just you go. Used to it. <laughs> good. I just rolled, and I, I like to tease them a lot. Wow. So we jump on the boat. I like to tease them a lot. I like to tease them. You know, it was. I how how fast were you guys going, Jim? Whenever you whenever you shot the uh, shot the engines out. Oh, we shot. I guess we probably wouldn't make more than four or five knots. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they were yeah real yeah. slow. I yeah. mean, but we was you just those eighty two footers are not made for you know being out there too far. Uh, they rock and roll real easy. So uh, we got aboard. I noticed this as. We were getting getting ready to get aboard. I was boarding man. Uh, my backup was Eric Dahl. Uh, he was a quartermaster. We had the cook on a shotgun. We had one seaman on a shotgun for the prisoners. I noticed her walking out the boat, walking out the superstructure there with uh, suitcases. And that's the first time I'd ever noticed that. You know, I'd never seen them do that before. I'd been on drug or other bus. But I'd never seen him do that. So it got me to wondering what was happening. Eric and I cleared the cleared the superstructure, cleared all the cabins and everything. Prisoners were on the back of the boat. There was 23 of them. And we headed for the engine room. Eric and I headed for the engine room. There was bales of weed, 50-pound bales of weed that were stacked on the deck. So we had to kind of crunched down eric and i are both real tall i'm six three he's six four we had to really kneel down and get back to the engine room well they had opened up the sea pods uh and water was just rushing in so i was in about knee deep water got the sea pods back on got got the flanges back on bolted it down went upstairs told him to get p60 so we could pump that thing out and we sat and brought him home Brought them Port, Port Bouchon, Louisiana. Good thing they brought the MK3, man. Yeah, right? Yeah, just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you'd have brought the brand new fireman. You know, wait, what am I doing here? <laughs> it was pretty wild. It was, I mean, but, uh, you never realize what that 50 can do until you see what it does to one inch steel. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. It cut right through that boat. And it's amazing nobody died. When so once you guys got him back, what was the what was the outcome? Do you remember the weight? Yeah, uh, forty five tons. Whew. That's Holy a good day. That's a lot of weed. Tons. <laughs> it, was, it was all gold Colombian weed too. Right, but that's like there's a lot of volume with that too. I mean, I've, oh, I've had some. 
I've had some marijuana busts and I've had some cocaine busts and the weight adds up real quick with the cocaine. But if you had a marijuana bust of 45 tons, that's an immense amount of marijuana. It, uh, it, uh, 180, 180 foot supply vessel, you know, offshore supply vessels. So the, yep. the, the, the mud tanks that they stored mm-hmm. the mud in, they were completely packed. Okay. It was just amazing. <laughs> the DEA didn't know what to do with the stuff. So they took it out on a barge and they burned it. Well, they burned it in the marsh where there's 10,000 shrimpers. <laughs> it, so they didn't get all burnt. So a lot of weeds are showing up in New Orleans smelling like diesel. Oh, and black. That's good. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was actually, we had 30 days later, we had another one. This one was kind of funny. We were, uh, the old man, we got recalled about, it was a Saturday afternoon. Nobody was happy about that. And the rumor was he was mad at his girlfriend, which I don't think it was. I think it was just get the crew to do what we had to do. We was, we'd been underway a lot. So uh, rumor had it there was something coming up to Mr. Go, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. So we got down there in the marsh, and we kind of put in to where nobody could really see us, notice us, and put the night light up and, or the night star, starlight thing up. And we just played around. We went out and actually shot some rabbits and did a little barbecuing and that next morning on the way back up the ditch going back to new orleans it was a sunday morning eric and i had to watch he had to he had the helm and i was an engineer to watch we got i saw a big old blue well probably 100 or maybe 235 foot inland coastal freighter up on the right side of the ditch and uh, I said, Eric, something's funny with this. And I smelled the weed. I said, Eric, we got dope. And, uh, you know, he was selling paraphone to the old man. He come up and we all just kind of, wow, really? <laughs> and, yep, they were stuck dead in the ditch, couldn't get out. So we just pulled up on that one. Yeah, heck yeah. What a find, man. Just just cruising yeah. around Wh- while like shooting flares. You know what I mean? I kind of wondered like what what's actually going to happen when if yeah, everybody had to know you were out there. I know. Yeah. I know. Unreal. Everybody knew where he was out there. We well, did a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of stuff back there with the Point Spencer. So the Point Spencer, is that, did you get deployed <laughs> down to the Florida Straits aboard that one? Yeah. Yeah. We just come out of the yard. Uh, this is, you know, the first part of 80, I guess it was. We'd just come out of the yard. I had just got on board. The Q and 3 and I, we both reported the same day, Eric Dahl, like I said. Um, we came out of the yards, and I was in the middle of a, or me and the chief and two firemen were in the middle of a plus change out there, group New Orleans, at Bayside, New Orleans. And they said, we got to get going. We, we've got something happening down in Key West. It looks like the gates are open where the, the refugees are coming in and they need some help. Well, Catholic Charities come in. They brought in a bunch of fruit, a bunch of Bibles and all this. And the newspaper showed up. And they, it was big national news back then. So off we went to Key West. And, man, i tell you what, that was the biggest thing I'd ever seen in my life as far as operations. It was an amazing thing to see. They had, at one time, 21 or 28 82s and 95s tied up together. 
at Base Key West. All so in the little in the little uh, in the basin right there. Yes, sir. Oh right man. There. So we had them stacked three deep. Of course, there was no showers or anything like that land sign we could use. So we had we hung fire hoses up over the fence there, and we used fire hoses to take showers on. <laughs> it was an amazing sight. What about we detention? Stared. Did you nobody was everybody being kept at sea at the time, or did they have anything? Yeah, set? we're yeah. at sea. We're yeah. at sea mostly. You know, uh, the only time I ever saw all of us tied up one time was was I want to say in August during the Coast Guard day. Oh, day. Yeah, for Coast Guard day, everybody had to. I like it. Everybody had to come. Yeah, out. good. Right, right. So the the we were there. We. We'd be out for three days, I guess it was, and this is nonstop work. There was no sleeping. You might be lucky if you got a three-hour sleep. Uh, we were having to – I'd have to transfer onto one of their boats. The ex, uh, 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 Eric would have to transfer onto another boat. We'd have to help bring them in. We at one time had a tow package set up. There were seven boats in tow off an 82-footer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on these boats, dude. And your heart just went out to them. I'll be honest with you. My heart was broken by it all because these people had been mocked up in Marriott Harbor with no food and no water and no facilities and men, women, babies. It was just, you know, when they saw us and we pulled in and we pulled up on them in the middle of the night and they're regularly ragging little boats and sinking and we'd put the lights on them and they'd look up at us like, like, you know, we were saviors. And that was just something guys. I wish, I wish everybody could have experienced that. Well, tell us Jim about the first, um, you know, you guys get down there and then right. how does the first day for operations go for you or the first, you know, the first time that you're actually called out to, to intercept one of these boats or patrol for them. We pulled in Key West, refitted, you know, and was out within three hours. And then I'm going to tell you the truth. It's a whirlwind. It was for the next four weeks. I couldn't tell you. I just know what I know in my mind, you know, it's still there. But it was nonstop. Like I said, you got no sleep, uh, barely got time to eat. Uh Everybody was just flat exhausted, and the Coast Guard did everything they could. They brought people in from, they brought the 82-foot crews, the blue and gold crews in from California to help augment us, uh, because you had to keep, I think we was running like 15 people on an 82-footer. There was just not enough for a regular crew. You know, you had too many watches going on, too many things going on at one time. Well, what was the normal crew on there? Ten. Okay. Ten. You had ten up. You had ten up forward and cruise burling, two in the mess deck, and two up top size. I love those eighty twos, guys. <laughs> I know you do. I can tell. Uh, man. <laughs> well, give us some of the some of the. Um, I won't say highlights, but um, I guess what whatever's most vivid from from when you were down there in the streets. <clears throat> the. Uh, you know, passing children from, you know, Eric and I being so big, I, I'd get on their boat and I'd pass the little ones up to him. Um, 
that you know, and, and you're doing that in you know four to six foot seas sometimes. So it, it's you really to me then is is I don't know. It just it just reminded me how precious life is, how easy it is to lose it, and um, I don't know. It just it just did something to me. Everything I did just you know just made my my it really widened my horizon. Uh, we pulled eight Marines off the motor vessel Wilson Harbor. She stunk. And don't ask me what they were doing out there. This is a yacht. But we get there, and these guys, they were scared to death. I mean, it was, I reached out and grabbed one of them. He just nailed me all the way down my arm. Uh, so to see fear in, in, in people and, and to know that you can pull them out of the water and, you know, you might be tired, you might be hungry, but damn it, you got the job done. Just like you're saying, you know, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back again. That was a motto for we lived. Hmm. That was good. That was I. I mean, that's. I think anybody knows that feeling, right? When you when you pull them out and just yeah, like, yeah. man, you just yeah. When yeah. you when you when the the babies the babies have never seen an apple or an orange in their lives, so. Got the charities that sent us all those. So we just brought them out and started giving them to the kids. There's a good picture of Wade Akins. He was the XO uh, from the Commandant's Bulletin back then, uh, probably a July issue or something like that. Uh, I have it somewhere here. But it shows him with a cigar in his mouth and handing an apple to a wide-eyed little Cuban boy. It's really a good picture. It really is. So... We'd go back to, after we, our first month there, we'd go back to New Orleans for, oh, probably about three weeks, maybe a month, and then back to Key West. Same thing, four weeks there, back to New Orleans for four weeks, four weeks back in Key West. It finally all stopped in November 1980. How, how long would you say it lasted for you guys? Like the actual, you know. For us, from, I guess it was March or April until November. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we, uh, and you know, a lot of that, it already, it has stopped, but we were doing the interdiction part then. You know, we was having to turn them away then. We had the Haitians and all that. And all that was right then was when they were having, the Coke Wars are all starting, the drug wars are all starting. And, you know, so the, the mission really had changed to, to hardcore interdiction work. Yeah, no more uh, like the humanitarian no more portions. Mr. Nice, yeah, no more yeah. Mister Nice Guy. You know, now we strap up. We all carried our weapons, and you know, you you didn't even put your weapon in the armory at night when you went to sleep, or, or after you got off watch, you just hung it on your rack. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it it got to where it was like you know, it, it was pretty airy at times. We had uh, Cuban gunboats come after us one night, and Air Force come out of nowhere and scared them off. That was pretty cool. It is pretty cool. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Uh, How did that thing go down? Tell, tell us about that encounter. Like, what's, you know, I don't know. We got. I think we got a little too close, and there was three of them on radar coming at us pretty heavy, and we got a hold of Dallas, and Dallas got a hold of whoever it was, and they took care of it for us. We mosey <laughs> on back home. Cubans thought they were Cubans thought they were pretty tough until they saw those uh, yeah. floors, huh? So there's a point at north and let's go. <laughs> so <laughs> we got into some stuff with that point, Spencer, I'm telling you. 
When so whenever you guys let's say you know go back to the boat lift real quick when you um, mm-hmm. whenever you guys would recover somebody from the water, you know if uh-huh. their if their boat wasn't seaworthy or whatever. I mean, I guess you had to make that determination, right? Is the boat seaworthy enough to tow, or is it not? Exactly, yep. exactly, exactly. And and we had to leave a lot of them out there. And well, how uh, how we big? We didn't uh, sink them. Oh, you guys didn't sink them. You just left them floating, huh? <laughs> no, no, we left them floating. Well, you had the bigger boats out there. You had the two tens and three seventy eights and stuff like that out there. That were more like on scene coordinators. <clears throat> so they would vector us to boats. They'd use their radars and all that, and they'd vector all the eighty twos and ninety fives to the boats, and then we'd pick them up and bring them in. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did, did anybody sink them, or did they just let them float out there? Man, I couldn't tell you. I yeah, you know, I just wondered. Was, I know. Yeah, I, I know I sometimes a day we'll just spray paint the side of them and then let them float. I've seen that before. <clears throat> yeah, we a lot of them sank on their own. Right. Uh, several of them did, uh, and that's you know we we just got to where we just pulled the people off the boat and put them on our boat and brought them on in. Uh, I think one time we had 145 refugees on on Point Spencer. Wow. So it just got, it got kind of hairy, you know. It got kind yeah, of a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's Nobody down change. below decks. Nobody below decks. Everybody up top side. Women up oh. forward. Women and children forward and all the men aft. A boat that size, uh, that's going to change how it rides and everything. Oh, yeah. I know 82s are amazing, man. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've, had, I've had over 100 people on the flight deck of a 210, and you start to feel like you're full. I can't imagine it on something that small. Yeah, I mean, they're amazing boats that's crazy you know they're 14 foot a beam they wallow like a fat lawn (laughs) you can be up in the pilot house with a one hand arm out the window and rough seas and your dang your arm will be dipping and you'll be taking such a roll you'll be dipping your arm (laughs) deadliest catch ain't got nothing on those guys Dilly's Catch is a good show. I love the show. I've watched every episode, but they don't ride like an 82. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's good. We, uh, let's see, after we finally got done with the Cuban Ops and all that, uh, the the two back to back real big drug busts, they decided that they took the crew. the Point Spencer crew, the whole crew, and they stuck us on the first WSES surface effect ship. They augmented us with a senior chief from the Navy and three Navy first-class machinists, and none of them had any idea what this boat was about, and they didn't have any idea what the Coast Guard was about. Well, and, we were about right. to, and we were supposed to shake this thing down, I think it was nine months we were supposed to shake this thing down and report back how much we loved it. Wow, man, come it. We underweighed. That's what we did. We got we left Bell Halter one morning and it took us forever to ever get back. Uh, it was. I think they what they did is we showed it mostly around the Gulf Coast. They sent us on any kind of star case anywhere there was out there in the Gulf Coast to see how the boat would perform. Weather wasn't a, wasn't a factor, any kind of weather. Um, we did a lot of boardings with that boat. Uh, I think I went from Brownsville, Texas, to every port in the Gulf of Mexico, just about, to Key West, Florida, in that boat. Uh, she was 110 foot by 42 foot of beam. She had 
216 B149 TI main propulsion and 244 inch 870 or eight, 244 inch diameter fans driven by 871s that brought her up on a bubble. And she that's what she wrote on, right? She, she wrote on the bubble, like uh, on the bubble. Yeah, right. She had a catamaran hull with a skirt, rubber skirt forward and a rubber skirt aft, and this forty-four inch diameter fans would blow. I think it was seven and a half pounds or something down, and would lift the boat up on a on the bubble. Well, you were supposed to be able to run this boat full speed in twenty foot seas. God, man, I don't know. Is there any boat that can run full speed in twenty <laughs> foot seas and not kill people? What was well. Well, well, maybe a well, tug, right? Because it only goes six why, knots anyway. That's probably why it had. That's probably why it had so many skirts get tore out, and <laughs> so many times that that uh, stress factors, stress factors all pe- over. Because people were testing that theory out, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, really we had it. to. We had to. I remember. Well, I just didn't get back and get reported somehow, but we pulled a. I think it was a little twenty-six foot, twenty-seven foot bay fishing boat. The center console over there in Gal- Galveston, Texas, one night. It was rough. We was taking it back to Galveston, and I looked back, and all of a sudden, I guess we had probably 300 foot of line out, something like that. I looked back to see that boat just take a, a up in the air and turtle, and then took a nose dive. We lost it. Mm. So yeah, we you know we uh, uh we were off of Mexico one night, not too far from Mexico, and I had just come off watch and went to sleep, and next thing I know, dead gum, alarms going off, general quarters, and I'm up, and I I feel my, the engine room door was right next to my, my, my burning area, and I felt the back of the door, back of my hand, and I said, oh, Lord, we got a fire. So... Uh, we went up topside. I got up topside. I was number one OBA man, strapped on the OBA. Eric was number two OBA man, charged fire hose and got into the got into the fire engine room. The fire was extinguished. Had a halon system in there. Had a real good fire system. What had happened was a uh, hydraulic hose had broken off a, a transmission. We had a velvet drive transmission on the boat and it had a 3,600 pounds, um, hydraulic hose burst and hit onto an open exchange or open manifold, exhaust manifold, and caused a pretty good sized fire. Not burnt that boat up. I was gonna say that kind of pressure that was probably some aerosol coming out of there. That was, yeah, it was just quick. Like, yeah, it, it just smoked the whole side of that boat, you know, whole wow. side of that engine room. Needless to say, they were not a successful test. We did not adopt that whole platform. I know. We I think we bought three of them, and they didn't last more than two years. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they lasted more than two years. And any of the WSES crews out there, I, I feel your pain, fellas. <laughs> I do. You know, it was, a, it was probably a good idea. And they were some comfy boats, dude. They were comfortable. You figure 110 foot at 42 foot of beam, you didn't have much of a wallow with that. How big was, was the beam stable. again? What was the beam? 40, 42. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, that's yeah a, so you, that was a that was a nice sized boat for steady platform. Yeah, wouldn't could land a helicopter on it. Were we the only ones running it, or did the Navy? I thought that the Navy had some down the there Navy too. Had, right? it, it was the Navy's boat. Oh okay. The first, <laughs> typical. The first, yeah. The very first time I, the Coast Guard. Hey, we can't make this work. You guys figure the, it out. 
We've got a lot more of this episode to go, and we'll get right back to it after this short ad from our sponsor. We're going to give you a key number about the future National Coast Guard Museum, and that number is five. There are five themed storylines. Lifesavers around the globe, enforcers on the seas, defenders of our nation, champions of commerce, and protectors of the environment. The exhibits and galleries in those storylines will be showcased in a five-story museum. And here's our favorite five. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a plank owner and support construction of the National Coast Guard Museum. For details on how you can get involved, go to coastguardmuseum.org out. That's coastguardmuseum.org forward slash O-U-T. The very first time I saw that boat, I was a fireman apprentice or a fireman. And it was SES 110, Bell Halter. It was as a service crew boat for going. It was, they were using it to take crews up to the oil rolls and coming back. And I knew it was the same boat because you could hear it from 10 miles away. You knew it was coming. Yeah. And open exhaust instead of having a closed exhaust like most boats do. Oh, okay. You know, and you had no water running through there. Uh-uh. Right. That sounded like a race spring, car. Oh, what? 16B149s at 50% power. That's 1,850 horses. Yeah. So I had two two blowers and four superchargers on two back-to-back V8s. So you can imagine the noise that thing made. I I don't know if I can imagine it. Actually, <laughs> oh, my ears it. my ears still ring from it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was a pretty boat. It was fun, but but it was it was hard on the crew because they 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 beat us to death being gone forever. We came in after we burnt that thing up. We finally made it back up the ditch, up Mister Go, and back to Bill Halter. They had us rebuilt. Bill Halter put in, took us, took us to the base for a couple of days. We went to the base for a couple of days, and come back. And that boat was rebuilt, ready for us to go again. It yes. didn't take more than seventy-two hours. Now. Somebody's trying to sell that thing. That's why. Here you yeah. go, we can fix oh, yeah. it. We fix it real oh, quick. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Navy owned it at the time. They was leasing it to us. Yeah. That's pretty good. So when we give it back to the Navy, the Navy cut it in half and added another. They made it up to 200 foot and tried to land a helicopter on it. Well, I don't know how that went. Of course, they didn't see maybe biting him. Yeah, must, must not have went too well, right? <laughs> Something didn't succeed. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Well, what about, let's let's talk about your time in the station, Jim. What um what was your job at the station, boat crew? Down in, yeah, uh, boat crew, uh, the first time I was there. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I, I qualified Boat engineer were pretty dang quick because that was my, you know, I wanted. I did all the quality codes. What, what, what boat were you on? Or what kind of what t- 41, okay. Yep. And then an SKB, we had a little 19 foot, I think it was 19 foot uh, McKee craft with a 70 horsepower on the back end of it. I think we had a couple of tick one boats, black hole monitor boats. Yep. Uh, let's see. And I kept looking at the points down, man. Those guys had it going on. I liked that boat. And they had a master chief as a CO. And this dude was, uh, he was right on. He was Master Chief Anastasio Mendez. Uh, I kept kind of hanging around over there. And one of the firemen went to school. He told group they wanted me, so group gave him me. You know, uh, We had one little drug bust on that boat. It was a 12-ton drug bust. And my biggest thing about Master Chief was him 
he was sitting up on the up on the helm, had his feet up on the the wheel, playing this harmonica over Channel Sixteen, <laughs> playing simple piranhas because we just got twelve tons of weed. I love that it. was pretty funny. It sounds that like a Grand Isle thing to do, by the way, is like just play, oh, play music man. over Channel 16. Yeah, the, the funniest thing about really Grand Isle, uh, the, my the quartermaster, it was a quartermaster chief was my boot camp commander, company commander. Marshall was his last name. He asked me, uh, he said, you like sun? I said, yeah. I said, you like beer? I said, yeah. You like, you like girls? I said, yeah. He said, you're going to love Grand Isle. There's a girl behind every tree. Well, how there's not a tree on that son of a gun. <laughs> the Grand Isle's pretty isolated duty, you know. We had, to, we had to go all the way to Golden Meadow, which is probably about 75 miles up the bayou on a two-lane road and swamp on either side of you to get a haircut. Yeah, that's, that's a rough day. Was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it hasn't changed much, Jim. I was down there in 2010 for the uh, Deepwater Horizon out of Grand Island. That's still pretty isolated duty for sure. Yeah, I, I went back three years ago. I, I made a trip to New Orleans just to go back and see the old spots. And I went down to Grand Isle again. And I said, wow, I didn't even bother trying to get on the base. It looks completely different than what it was when I was there. Uh, town has grown up significantly. You know, back when I was down there, it was a shrimp, shrimp, uh, shrimpers and, and offshore workers. All it was. Mm -hmm. We had, I think, 14 bars on that seven mile island. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's solid at least. At least least you had somewhere to burn (laughs) it all off, you know, burn off the steam. (laughs) 14 bars and two kinds of beer, right? Budweiser (laughs) and Miller Light. Yeah, Miller Light. Yeah. And we had a little street gig there. We, uh, uh, during the summertime, got to, I got to crew the, the state park. Um, well, they had a 21-foot Boston Wade with a 200 on the rear end of it. So I got to run it during the summertime. Oh, that cool. was my second tour. That was my second tour in Grand Isle. I don't know how I ended up in Grand Isle again. But that, you know, they said, the day they gave out the orders there at MKA school, they said, if you come from 378, you're going back to the 378. And if you come from Grand Isle, you're going back to Grand Isle. Well, hell, I was the only person from Grand Isle. Man, that's rough. That is rough. I know. I just looked at my that's buddies funny. and I said, really? Come on, man. Yeah. Right back to Grand Isle. So I wasn't real happy about being back in Grand Isle, but there were some really good folk there. Some real good guys, some real good hardworking BMs and MKs, and we had some good boat crews. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and the Point Spencer kept popping up down there, and I got in pretty good with their crew and got to talking to them. And I just was in love with that. Just in love with 82s. And uh, they ended up getting me over there. So, so that's, that's how I went to the point. Let me let my mom go. Go. Sorry about that. What's the dog's name? Oh, right. That was Sally. I've got three of them. Sally. Like, like the cover <laughs> Sal? No, 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 Sally, no. my girl, yeah, redheaded girl. Oh, okay, fair oh, enough. Okay. <laughs> redheaded girl. The, uh, you know, the after the boats, I kind of I met a girl in November of 1980. Yeah, I think it was. And uh, 
I went to Captain Port New Orleans. I wanted to see something the other side of the, of the you know, I want to see what the blue side did. I want to see what they did. You, you wanted to become a yeah, support MK. Su- support MK versus an operational MK. <laughs> I want to see what the inside did. Yeah. I like the idea of pollution, you know, cleaning up pollution. I like the idea of that. So off I went to Mespoc school and I went off to. What's, what's, what's Mespoc, Jim? Mespoc was Marine Environmental Safety Petty Officers course. Okay. It was, I'm going to say, it was 12 weeks. Good at God. Yorktown. Yeah, that's a, that's a significant yeah, course. Yeah. Man, it was a heck of a course. It taught you everything you want to know about the 33 CFRs. Yeah. You know, that was our Bible. We carried it everywhere. <clears throat> so, you had to learn pollution investigations, had to learn pollution cleanups, had to learn hazmat, hazmat cleanups, hazmat response, uh, had to learn oversized tow, the whole inside. Had to learn explosive loading. I went out to school in California for that. Um, had to do law enforcement. You just—it was a big operation. I—I—I uh, I, I was there for three years, and then they kind of a—I—I had gone through all the departments and gotten a real working knowledge of all the departments, and then they came up with this bright idea. And I think this is what happened is, I think this came out to be the the current rate OS. Well, I already think it's a bad idea, but go ahead. Well, I think this is what happened. I think this is how, how it was born. I didn't say it. What they, well, that's all right. That's all right. That was for you, Phil. I'm going to kind of give those guys a, a little thumbs up because I, I, what they did is they took me and they put me in the SAR desk with a SAR man and they merged our jobs together. Okay? So... We were on call. You, know, you, you sit there in the operations room for 12 hours on, 12 hours off, two days on, two days off, sliding weekends. That's how we worked. So it was a radio man, a, B, a BM, a QM, or, you know, whoever. It could have been whoever else was on that side. And we handled group and port operations, SAR and M side. So I'm wondering if the OC people do, or the OS people do the same thing now. Yeah, the only difference is, like, you had been to sea. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Hey, I'm serving yeah. some OSs that have been to sea. Some of them are cool, yeah. and some had, of them work in command centers. I had five years at sea. So I was, you know, I I enjoyed it. I did. I hated it, but I enjoyed it. Right. There's nothing like being out there in deep water, and that, the color of that water is just amazing. Didn't you say too, Jim? You you sailed somewhere pretty far, right? Didn't you you sail through the ditch or something on one? Was it? Oh, when I say the ditch, uh, the Mister, uh, no, no, no. Okay. When I say the ditch, I mean the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. Oh man, that's funny. That's oh, a okay. yeah. There you go. A little regional, yeah, regional we, name. We called different it. ditch. I got right, it. We called it the ditch, and what happened is, you know, they closed it up after Katrina. Yeah. Right. They closed it. You know, back about Captain of the Port New Orleans. Uh, I had a cush job. I guess they decided I was. I was. I don't know. They they gave me a cush job. Uh, about six months. They had the World's Fair come in, in 1984 to New Orleans. So they they had a reserve four striper captain, and they grabbed me up and said I was going to be his assistant. So that made me the 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 assistant commander of 
Coast Guard Operations Rules Fair. We had our own little office, government vehicle, and employee, you know, employee uh, um, identification cards. And my responsibility then was just make sure the boat crews were did their checks three times a day, and in the evening have somebody on scene for uh, fireworks. So that was a pretty little cushy job. That was right after I came off the boats. Yeah, that's a solid job, man. How was the yeah, World's Fair? I don't, I've that. never been to a World's Fair. Do um, they still do them? Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, I don't know. It was fun, though. A lot of beer tents. Yeah, that's cool. A lot of beer tents. Uh, what was the coolest what, thing you saw at the World's Fair? the world more than beer. <laughs> the, 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 well, the funniest, I think, was we had, um, we had the Australian women's dive team, and they were pretty fun girls. Enough said. Well, I, yeah, I'm sure I they were lovely them. ladies, church going girls. Were, just they yeah. were, they were made they their were mothers proud. Fantastic. And we do a crawfish bowl for them. And well, <laughs> it wasn't real well received by the wives and girlfriends of our teammates. Yeah, I suspect and, uh, yep. the boat crews. Yeah, they, they it was kind of wild, but it's yeah, Coast Guard life was just for me. <laughs> Dude, the best you, statement man. we've heard on the podcast man <laughs> coast guard yeah, life it's so. just it's for me <laughs> yeah it was for me it's just i couldn't i don't know i just i'm sitting here grinning ear to ear thinking about all the memories and and what the coast guard how the coast guard helped me out and what it did for me yeah. uh you know back then you know they're gonna say he's an e4 with 10 years hey, i wasn't e4 with 10 years what of it i didn't want to make great I didn't want to sit there and push pencils about engineering logs. I wanted to be there getting in nitty gritty. I wanted to be on the boat cruise, you know. When that's, um, I guess that leads us to the next kind of the next thing that we were talking about, Jim. You know, um, some of the struggles afterwards. You know, after after it was over. Well, it really began when I got on to the Point Roberts. I, uh, there's just something wasn't right with me. I I don't know. The boat was in bad shape. I mean, really bad shape. She should have been in the yard 10, 20 years ago, 15 times over. She was, you I'd go down and got down in the village area and reached along the keel and the, there's an eye beam down here where the keel's laid and pull up big humps of steel from the rust. And it just, you know, it's rough out there on the Atlantic side too. So I got transferred over there, got to Mayport in the middle of the night, Sunday night, I was supposed to check in on Monday, but I thought I'd go down to the boat and see what was going on. And well, the boat wasn't there. And so I went up to the op center. I was going to go down and get me a hotel room for the night. Went up to the op center. The OD that was a BM2. He said, he had just come off the point Bob. We called her the point Bob. He said, uh, they're down to Canaveral. And this is two days after the challenger. The Challenger had blown up. She was the Point Roberts was right up underneath her when that happened. Wow! So I I get I get down to the Point Bob's. It's like forty eight hours or maybe seventy two hours after the Challenger incident. So I was out there with when we were doing you know looking for parts and pieces and stuff like that for about six weeks. Did you guys find any? How was the? How did that go? Man, uh, I know. I'll tell you a funny. They found chicken bones one night out on the beach, 
and group Canaveral wanted us to go down there and find out, you know, about these chicken bones. Well, heck, it's 12 foot seas out here. You want us to launch our, our Avon, our 12 meter Avon, you know, our 12 foot Avon with a 50 horsepower on it and put our guys on the beach when you can put, you know, send your truck out there. But it turned out to be chicken bones. And, you know, but we had already known that the castle had been recovered. Yeah, the so castle was-, was covered. The castle was covered real quick. So whenever you guys pulled up, like whatever, it, um, whatever debris, yeah, you, whatever little found, pieces, you know, what'd you guys do with it? Yeah, you have to little treat pieces. It like, we we bring it right back in, put it on deck, bring it back into the cape. Yeah, I didn't know if I was just curious if there was like some kind of weird, yeah. you know, like hey, this stuff's been to the edge of space, so we don't touch it. I don't, you know, who knows? No, yeah. no, no. We didn't worry about stuff like that back in those days. Yeah. We really didn't, you know. We, I can remember being a fireman inside of a diesel tank, scrubbing a diesel tank out without anything but my me and my underwear, you know. <laughs> come out, of, come out of that diesel tank just covered in red blisters, you know. Go take a shower and go hit the beach. So yeah, man, it's a different Coast Guard, that's for sure. Oh, I know it is. Some of the stuff I read today is, you know, it's it's good. It's good. It's it's different Coast Guard though. It is. Well, it's, you know, it's probably cheaper. It's cheaper to, <laughs> to pay for the safety gear than it is the VA claim. So that's my theory on it. Well, okay. So here we go. Um, my last SAR on that boat, we were off the coast of South Carolina. It was rough, guys. It was 25 footers. And we had a, a blowboat. She lost her. She lost her rudder. So we had to go get her. And once we got there, it was like, when you're out on that deck trying to pass out that hauser, you, you just learn to ride on ADG footers. It's like, like being a dancer in a way. You just learn how to ride and what happened to hold your hands. You're, you know, you just, it's hard to explain, I guess. Yeah, once you've, been on something, once you've been on something long enough, you kind of know yeah. when it's coming back. You know yeah. when it's going up and down. I yeah. got you. Yeah. Yeah. So we got the tow passed, and we finally got him underway. It was making about three knots or so heading towards Charleston. And uh, I hit the rack. I was wore out. I'd been up for quite a while. I'd already had watch and all that. And I had a, a fireman that, that didn't really pay attention. He he wasn't real good heavy weather or anything like that. But I, I was tired. I went to bed. Uh, got myself strapped in. Because you have to strap yourself in them 82s, you know. You get in a rack. You don't just climb in a rack and hope you're going to stay in there because you're not. Mm. Uh, so, Bill's alarm went off. I got down to the engine room and it was flooded. And it scared me to death. But, you know, I knew what to do. Went down there and swapped over the fire main to suck the water out. And, uh, it just kind of, from then on out, man, I just said, no, this, you know, I don't know if it was the boat or if it was, you know, the constant underway, the constant, you know, the constant problems. Something just kind of just said, no, oh, Jim, this ain't right. Well, I guess it was a week or so later, we was back down there in Mayport, and I slept walk on the boat. So they sent me to a... The Navy had a base there, and they sent me to a Navy psychiatrist. And he was Filipino, and 
he spoke Filipino and I don't speak Filipino. And next thing I knew, I was on my way out with an honorable discharge for sleepwalking. Mm. I came up the Coast Guard and man, it just blew me. I, I, it hurt. It hurt every bone in my body because I really was going to go ahead and make rank and was going to stay for 30. I wanted to be a master chief or a warrant. My father was a warrant in the army and I kind of wanted to achieve the same thing he did. But I, I started drinking too heavy. I lost my family. I lost everything I owned. I kind of went kind of halfway homeless, kind of, you know, doing any kind of odd job I could. And then one day I decided I was going to get, I had to get dry. I had to, I had to quit drinking. So I went to the VA. Uh, my, one of my uncles told me I needed to go to the VA. And once I got to the VA, it took them a little while, but they finally said, you know what? You need to talk to this shrink. And they sent me to a, a shrink in New Orleans. And she understood right then and there. She says, well, you've got PTSD. And about, man, about six weeks later, I got a check. Uh, and it's for 30%. I said, really? And then they give me another check because I had an injury when I was in the Coast Guard on my right shoulder. And uh, I got another 30%. And after a few years, they, they sent me through some therapy. I went to, uh, I moved back home to Arkansas in 2000. They put me in therapy up here at Fort Roots at the VA hospital. And I stayed there probably a total of 18 months in and out. And now I'm 100% service-connected, got my ID card back, got an Air Force base I can go to. Live in a beautiful little mountain place in the Ozarks in Arkansas and loving life. Man, I'm glad it wow. worked out. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm just really glad to hear the VA treated you right. Me too. I'm glad that's, I'm well, glad that's know, where you're at we, now. The VA, there was, you know, I was in there when it was bad, too. Uh, the VA has a lot of bad to it, but there's somebody in that program that will understand you, that will that will know, hey, this guy's been there. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and he'll, you got to find that one person that will believe in you and that will talk to you. And from then on, it'll help you heal if you're, if you're hurting. Wow. It will help you to get involved with other veterans. And, you know, I'm always the unicorn, man. Ain't nobody know who you're in the Coast Guard. Really? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm right. the unicorn. I'm the unicorn. I wear a Coast Guard hat over here to the air base, and they all just kind of stare at me. Huh? Yeah. That's me. Yeah, we do stuff too, guys. Probably, yeah, probably seen do. more than most of them, I would bet, you know? Right. It's really fun to run into an older Coast Guard. You know, I got one that was down the road from me. In fact, I'm blessed. He's no Vietnam vet. Uh, retired after 25 years, I think it is. Master Chief, or not Master Chief, but MKC. And he's probably 85, 86 years old now. So I stop in to see him all the time. Yeah, good man. That's yeah. Awesome. And, you know, once a coastie, always a coastie. We take care of our own, right? For sure. And I, hey, I, I would ask you, Jim, like, you know, just because um, you put the plug out there for the VA, if, uh, sure. you know, if somebody listening is struggling, whether, you know, whether they join in 68 or joined in 2008, um, how uh, how do they start that process of 
going to the VA and, and getting the help that they might need. Well, how did you do it, I guess, you know? Uh, well, I did it through the through the alcohol program, you know. I had to have help for, for drinking. And I haven't had a drink in 14 years. Wow. Um, That's great, man. Yeah, and believe me, I was a, I drank. You know, I drank. I, we, that was the way we see. We learned to drink while we were young in the Coast Guard, and that's what that's what hid the pain. You know, from your very first bottle recovery, you're shocked. You know, you don't you don't you don't know what it's like. You're you're a kid that come from mom mom's apple pie and baseball, and you know, all of a sudden you're you're hit with your nineteen twenty years old and you're hit with a dead body that's been in the water for six weeks and it stinks I haven't. You know, so how do you deal with that pain at that age? Well, we all went to the bar. And that leads into, you know, more and more and more and more and it just keeps building until it explodes one day. That's not good when it explodes. So you got to get that help before it explodes. Good. You got to save your own life. Now, the so I went through the alcohol program, um, and in the alcohol program, there was a counselor that was a Vietnam vet. He was a combat medic, and he he and I sat and talked for you know many many days, many many hours, and you know I I, I shared my experiences with him, and he's really the guy that was instrumental. So I did this in New Orleans, but then when I came to Arkansas, the the doctor that started the program up here, um, really a good guy. He and I sat in, in his office for hours and talked. And that's when he realized, he said, you know, I don't think I've ever had a Coast Guardsman. He said, we need to look into this more. And he started looking into, you know, Coast Guard people with PTSD. I have a friend of mine that... Uh, I met that's a coasting that uh, he's out on the West coast. He's from Arkansas, but I met him at Little Rock. Um, and his life's changed too. Once he got into, once he got into a program to help him out and made him feel like he's not such a bum, you know? That's great, man. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just glad to hear that there was somebody there to, to help you get it back back the way it needed yeah. to be. And anybody that, and anybody from your program needs to reach out, find me on Facebook, man. You know, just find me on Facebook. Uh, that's how I found you. Know, you're pretty quick to respond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll help you out. I, you know, that's my, you know, I'm still a coasting. I'm still helping. And that's, that's the way my life is going to always be. It's solid, always Jim. Sol- solid advice and a solid, uh, solid offer to help if anybody needs it. Anybody, anybody. I love the Coast Guard and I love the guys that join it and the girls that join it. I think they, uh, they're a different breed of people. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. Jim, I'll ask you any, uh, any parting shots before we, uh, before we close it out. No, uh, underway's the only way guys. Amen <laughs> 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 to that. That's good. <laughs> Thank y'all. Well, yeah. Hey, Jim. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Jim, thanks so much for your stories, and and we really appreciate uh, appreciate you sharing them with us today. And and thank you for your service. Yeah, okay, so buddy. appreciate y'all. Thank you, man. Thank y'all too. And you know, keep 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 doing the good fight, guys. I I'm enjoying this. Thanks. Bye. Stay safe. 
Before we end this, we want to give a plug for some people and organizations that we believe in. The Coast Guard Foundation supports the brave men and women of the Coast Guard when they need it the most, providing everything from financial aid to families in crisis to scholarships and playground equipment. As a nonprofit 501c3 charity, they count on our donations to deliver this support. Visit CoastGuardFoundation.org. That's CoastGuardFoundation.org to read about their programs and donate. What you can to support those who guard our nation's coast. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you like what this podcast is about and what we delivered, look us up at theyhadtogoout.com or your favorite podcast platform. And like, comment, subscribe, and share so we can keep the momentum up and do bigger things going forward. Look for a new episode every Sunday. Until then, fair winds and following seas.